Tēnā koutou, no mai haere mai. Welcome to q and I'm Jack Tang. Today, booze and sport. Many Kiwis don't give a second thought to alcohol brands sponsoring our biggest teams and competitions, but that could be about to change. Then, confusion and frustration for police. Why aren't all police officers a priority in the vaccination rollout? And we ask National's top Māori MP if he stands by his leader as the Māori Party co-leader is kicked out of Parliament for accusing the opposition of racism. Order! The member will now leave the chamber. First, though, to the worsening situation in the Middle East. Overnight in Gaza, the Israeli military has bombed a building that was home to foreign media. The building housed offices for Al Jazeera and the Associated Press. Israel claims it also had military assets belonging to the Hamas militant group. Gaza health groups say 145 Palestinians have been killed since fighting broke out six days ago, including 41 children. Israel claims 10 of its residents have died. Here, hundreds of protesters took to the streets throughout New Zealand yesterday in support of the Palestinian position, as the international community calls for an end to the violence. But what is the appetite for a ceasefire in a region with a rich recent history of violence? Shai Gal is a journalist with Channel 2 in Israel. I spoke with him overnight and I asked how this fighting compares to other recent conflicts between Hamas, Palestinians and Israel. Well, you know, Jack, um, unfortunately, these kind of clashes happens every few years. The last one was seven years ago, and, and it happened again. Um, and I think, you know, we can, we can uh, you know, drill down to what happened this time, but I wouldn't say that people are surprised of it. People were just basically counting the time until this will erupt again. And, and it just happened. And, uh, but I think... Um, it's not like people get, can get used to that. No one can get used to uh, you know, waking up in the middle of the night with um, alarms and missiles being shot to his home. Shai, as it stands at the moment, both from a Hamas perspective and an Israeli perspective, is there appetite for a ceasefire? I mean, currently, I mean, we are at the sixth day of this, uh, this operation. And, and according to what's been um, you know, announced yesterday, so Hamas is already asking for a ceasefire. Uh, because he's always asking for ceasefire at a um, condition when he can tell his people that he got what he wanted. Um, and, and, and of course, Hamas opened this, um, um, this fight in um, some, you know, uh, dramatic achievement from his point of view. But I think in the last few days, he's been severely hit by Israel, and now he's the one who's asking for ceasefire. But we can, uh, what we know is both that the American um, you know, send people here and the Egyptians are already in Gaza discussing ceasefire. Um, you can never tell when that's going to happen. I mean, it can happen really quickly. I think, uh, like, in, I don't know, 24, 48 hours. Yeah. Um, but it can take longer than that. We know it from seven years ago when we were supposed to end the operation every day. It, it lasted 51 days. I don't think it's the case, but uh, they are discussing it. Uh, at the moment, Israel is the one who is not uh, um, willing so much to go to ceasefire at that moment. Why not? Why not? Because I think, you know, Israel it hasn't achieved what uh, she's asked to achieve yet. I mean, uh, I think if you look back at the last 24 hours, Israel made um, significant uh, army achievement in Gaza, uh, bombing, I think, the, um, 
some of the heart of the command of the under tunnel that's going on in Gaza. I don't know how people in, in New Zealand are familiar with that, but actually there is uh, what we call the uh, upper Gaza and the lower Gaza. And actually Hamas militants, uh, you know, they dug um, a net of tunnels underneath Gaza when they can hide and when they can go out and fight Israel. And I think uh, there was a major bombing yesterday uh, by Israel and a significant part of it was destroyed. So Israel has, um, you know, um, wrote down a major achievement which might lead to interest. And I think that's why actually the ceasefire conversation are starting. So, you know, it's a balance of win and lose. And I think Israel, you know, proved their uh, point yesterday with a major attack in Gaza and which brings us closer um, um, to discussing ceasefire. Shai, there is always a question in these conflicts of proportionate responses. International audience compare Hamas and their use of homemade rockets with the Israeli military and its state-of-the-art precision weapons. They consider the casualties on both sides. And of course, Palestinian civilian casualties vastly outnumber Israeli casualties. Where you are in Israel, does the Israeli public feel their military's response has been proportionate? Well, I think that, you know, if, you, if I can speak, you know, um, very sincerely with you, I would say that the Israeli public um, feel that at the moment uh, it's absolutely proportional what's going on now. And I, I'll, maybe I'll, I'll try to get you into you know, the Israeli point of view. It's, it's Monday and, you know, there are being events, because I think we should maybe go back to how come this round started. Okay, and you know this round started with uh, um, events that happened in Jerusalem. But then Hamas is shooting missiles to Jerusalem, six missiles to you know habitat areas, and during the the National um, Jerusalem Day, and it's a major achievement for Hamas. It's a major surprise in Israel, and it's followed by uh, I would say a dozen, a hundred of rockets shooting into civilian centers, including Tel Aviv. I mean. Uh, my Monday night and my family was going every 10 minutes to the shelter uh, to hide from rockets. And when you see that and when you have, I think Israel is counting almost 2,000 missiles being shot at civilian areas uh, in this round. And, and when you count that in mind um, um, and you count the effort of the Israeli army to hit back very strongly, okay, but in a much more accurate way, because I think there is a major difference when you're um, dealing with a terror organization. Um, of course, there are people who are being uh, killed, but they're not being killed intentionally. And I think a lot of the, the majority of the public in Israel see that way. I mean, there is damage. I don't think no one is happy. If, if, uh, and if someone is happy, the, it's wrong that people are happy with, you know, uh, uh, uninvolved being killed, a family uh, with kids being killed in Gaza, no one is happy about it. But when you have um, an organization like Hamas who is actually uh, operating from civil center, it's inevitable uh, during this time. And I don't think there is, from the Israeli majority point of view, no one will tell you that it makes any logic if someone is shooting missiles at your house um, to say, okay, it's fine, we'll take that, and, and that's what it's going to be. And, and I think that the number of casualties in Gaza up to this moment, I mean, it, of course it's high, but it's not as high as in the uh, operation uh, before, because I think the IDF is making um, a huge effort not to hit uninvolved people, but it will happen. It cannot, in, I mean, Gaza, Gaza Strip is, um, is an intense density population area. It's impossible 
to fight there and not uh, harm uninvolved. Mm. Uh, that, that obviously is the Israeli perspective and you are based in Tel Aviv in Israel at the moment, Shai. And I should note that obviously this is an incredibly contentious issue and there will be many people who say that from a Palestinian perspective, the Israeli military's response certainly is not proportionate, that inevitably, as with so many of these conflicts, more Palestinian civilians end up dying than Israelis. And you have a nation-state with a vast military versus a stateless people using rudimentary homemade rockets, and they will say that's a David and Goliath uh, conflict. No, no but, but, but I, I just want to add just one word to that, Jack, because, you know, I, I, and I'm not an Israeli spokesman, I'm an Israeli journalist, but... Um, You've got to look at the big picture, and the big picture that there is an organization in Gaza who's called Hamas, okay, who is acting in terror ways, and they are shooting to civilian areas. And I don't think that, you know, any, any, anyone in the world will tell himself, yeah, it's fine that people will get shot at their home with missiles hitting buildings. And, you know, um, yeah, we should sit down and, and wait for something to happen because we cannot uh, uh, attack back with the full force Israel have. And, you know, it, it's funny because in the last, it's not funny, it's actually it's terrible because in the last seven years, when there hasn't been an operation, right, like things are okay, uh, almost 2,000 missiles were shot during that time to Israel. So I don't think, uh, uh, I, I think that's the real situation. And, and people in Hamas, you know, who had a chance to, and they control Gaza for 14 years now, um, um, I don't think they want to turn it into something else than this terror state. And you know what, and I, and I want to add the last sentence is that I think that a lot of people in Gaza, um, I, I, feel, I feel pity for them because they were, um, they are obviously in uh, horrifying days, okay? And there is no democracy, they, they cannot go to vote and, you know, take down Hamas because democracy doesn't apply in Gaza. Shai, this has been a tumultuous period in Israeli politics. Four elections in two years, no one able to form a government. Benjamin Netanyahu is facing corruption charges. Is his political position likely to have impacted the way he's handled this response? You know, we were discussing it yesterday. I mean, we were talking about it. And first of all, of course, the, the Israel is politically unstable. It has never been before in this kind of, uh, um, of, of state. I mean, like you said, four elections... Um, uh, Benjamin Netanyahu is still in power, but he doesn't have the majority of the, the House of Representatives in Israel. He cannot form a government. But um, I don't think that this operation, okay, has to do with, you know, a uh, political decision of uh, Netanyahu in order to um, not be able to form another, another government. Of course, there has been a significant thing that happened, because the, in the days before this operation, the, what we are calling, uh, what is called in Israel the block of change, which is a block of parties from the right and from the left who were supposed to form an, an alternative coalition against Netanyahu, um, almost set up uh, um, a new government. And since the operation started, one of them, um, a leader of the right, decided that it, uh, he's out of the game and this, this coalition won't be formed. But I don't think that Netanyahu went to this operation in Gaza in order um, to, you know, to stop this coalition. And, and I think it's a risky game for a leader to go to any kind of war or any kind of operation hoping to win political uh, causes. And, and, and I think Netanyahu didn't take this bet. This is something that happened uh, while the operation is going and not because or not... I mean, I would give Netanyahu a lot of credit for being um, 
a really, really, really good politician, and some, you know, may say, uh, you know, obviously, I think half of the people in Israel are against him being uh, um, in the government, but I don't think he would take the risk. There were too many prime ministers in Israel who lost their chairs because of army operation. So I think it's a consequence. And if you ask me, I think we're going to a fifth election, which is, you know, this is terrible. This is horror. This is not a way. I mean, a democratic country cannot go to uh, elect its uh, um, um, House of Representatives every few months. It's, it's crazy. It's just crazy. Finally, Shai, what is Israel's long-term strategy when it comes to Gaza? Obviously, Gaza is surrounded on all sides at the moment. It's very difficult for people to either enter or leave Gaza. But what is the long-term strategy for Israel? Jake, I'll tell you something which, you know, which I'm, I'm, I'm really unhappy to tell you. You know, as someone who is living here, his family here, and, you know, as a journalist covering these areas for many years, I don't think, and I'm saying it really unfortunately, that once this operation is over, something is going to change. I mean, uh, what we are probably going to have, going to see is, you know, there is going to be a major devastation in Gaza. Hamas will go out and say, we did that, blah, 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 we won. The people in Gaza will keep being miserable. And, you know, people in Israel will not be able to live safely and will we'll count the days till the next round. And I think, you know, people will say, OK, we got now four years, we got seven years. That's what we got. And, and, and in between, they're going to be, you know, smaller clashes, because that's unfortunately um, what's going to happen, because nothing's going to change. I mean, Hamas is not going to change his goal toward Israel. Israel uh, probably won't change is, uh, the way she's dealing with Gaza. There are people, Jack, who may tell you that, you know, part of the Israeli government has, um, um, they are seeing this condition as convenient for, for you know, to the right-wing uh, point of view, because once they have Hamas in Gaza and the Palestinian Authority in the West Bank, you can't really talk with anyone, as you know, as the father of the old Palestinian. It's a good thing if you don't want to give anyone a country. And so I think that's what's going to happen. We're going to count the days until the next operation in Gaza will occur, and it will occur, unfortunately. And, you know, that's the tragedy of what's going on here. That is Israeli journalist Shai Gal. Just to give you the very latest numbers from overnight, 145 Palestinians have so far been killed in the uh, military conflict over the last week. That includes 41 children. Ten Israelis have been killed. Up next, when exactly are police officers being vaccinated? Confusion and frustration in the force over the timeline for all officers to get the jab. Hoki Maya Tefano, welcome back to Q&A. Police are concerned they're not all being prioritised for COVID-19 vaccinations. Like other border and MIQ workers, officers on the front line of the COVID-19 response were at the top of the list for vaccines in New Zealand. But other officers on regular duties might have to wait with the general population to receive their vaccine. That has frustrated some, and the Police Association's Chris Carhill is with us this morning. Tēnā welcome to Q&A. Just be clear with us, when are police being vaccinated? Well, currently there's a program rolling out that's doing approximately 1,800 officers on the front line who could be deployed to MIQ facilities. The remaining officers, so the vast majority, and the last uh, tranche, so with the general public population, so right at the end. And why do police have a problem with that plan? 
Well, in simple terms, if you look at the various groups that have been designated and when they should get done, you've got a group called 2B, and that is basically all frontline emergency workers, it's said. It's people that work in Auranga Tamariki, so with our youth, with mental health, basically people that police interact with every day of the week. And equally, if we have another outbreak, it's the police officers who will be at the front line, setting up those cordons, having to dealing with the major issues that a outbreak would cause. So, so why do they need to be vaccinated earlier, though? If, if the police who are likely to have some sort of interaction with people who could be carrying the virus are all being vaccinated, why do other officers need to have their vaccinations brought forward? Because if there's an outbreak, it's the police will be at the front line. I mean, we've looked at this the wrong way. We've looked at it that New Zealand's safe, so police don't need to be vaccinated to the general population. But the whole point of vaccinating is if there is an outbreak, and that's when the police will be at the front line. They'll be dealing with the people that are carrying the COVID, and that is why they need to be vaccinated earlier. And we've talked to the minister about this. She said, yeah, I see where you're coming from, but we haven't heard back to know that there's going to be a change, but when there needs to be. When did you speak with the minister? Two weeks ago. Right. And, and what did you say to the minister specifically? Well, we basically said that the thinking appears to be wrong. Yeah, If you think mental health workers, youth workers, a variety of other emergency services need to be vaccinated early, then you misunderstand that police are actually the ones that are more likely to deal with these people in the first instance, especially when in volatile situations. I mean, the fact is in New Zealand, when you have someone with mental distress, it's very likely police are going to be the first person to deal with them, not a mental health worker. How does this vaccination plan compare with other countries? Uh, it's completely different. Um, so police in Australia have been brought forward and they are at the front end of the vaccination programs. And that's generally the case around the world because it's recognised that if there is an outbreak, it's police that will have to be at the front. Our producers noted a comment from an anonymous police officer in the latest edition of the Police News magazine. I'm just going to read it so our viewers can hear what this comment said. Are we with the general population or emergency services, which last time I looked I thought we were a key component of? I would hate to see the mess if 20% of New Zealand's police were hit by the virus. Is that comment um, representative of how police officers are feeling at the moment? Yeah, pretty much sums it up very well. Yeah. Uh, I, I think the, the idea that police aren't emergency services has left everyone scratching their heads. H have police officers individually been clear about where they stand in the vaccination rollout? No, look, there has been quite a bit of confusion and there's certainly been delays. I, look, I will say police have stepped up in the last two weeks and you know, about 2,000 people, that's frontline and their household contacts, have been vaccinated in the last two weeks and we're really pleased with that. What we want now is surety that that vaccine is going to be available to continue that rollout, not to wait to the fourth tranche with general New Zealanders. So, so OK, when would be a reasonable time for the remaining uh, police force to be vaccinated? Well, we think it should just continue to roll out now. You know? So the two Bs, the rest of those emerging services are now being done if they haven't been done. I mean, Defence have done 8,800 people. I've got staff that I, I that I've no people, sorry, that work in IT departments in Aurangi Tamariki who have been vaccinated. I had one officer who said his 17-year-old son who works two days a week as a shelf stacker at Chemist Warehouse has been vaccinated. So we say roll it out now, keep it going, 
why we've got um, the ability to do it. To be clear around the remaining numbers of police officers who need to be vaccinated, if 1,800 officers have been vaccinated plus another 200 or so close household contacts, how many more police officers need to be vaccinated? Well, if to do them all, roughly about 7,000. Right, um, OK. Is, is, there, is there a sense of general resentment within the force at the moment. I'm thinking about the confusion over, over the pay freeze and some other issues that have, been, that have arisen lately. Oh, I don't know if resentment's a word, but I'd certainly say it's probably the toughest time to be a police officer that I can remember, and that's what we're hearing. I mean, it's really driven by three things. The, the, the amount of work, the workloads are horrendous. The, you know, a 44% increase in the last four years in family harm incidents. Mm. You know, 68,000 mental health uh, events to have to attend last year. Followed from that is the risks. I mean, without a doubt, an officer is injured in an assault every day in New Zealand, every day of the year an officer is, is injured. That's not just assaulted, that's injured. Then don't get me on the firearms and the risks they pose. And then of course you have the public scrutiny these days and you know a lot of it's justified, some of it's ill-informed and, and some is just um, to drive their own agenda and to spreads misinformation and, and that all adds up, those three things, to make it a pretty tough time. You spoke to the police minister two weeks ago, you haven't had a response, what is your message now? Uh, look, on the vaccine, I think we just want the guarantee that they'll continue to make it available why we've got the ability to roll it out right across the police force. All right. Chris, I, I have one last question. I'm going to put you on the spot here. Um, a little later in the programme, we are getting, going to be considering a, a bill that proposes to restrict advertising for alcohol in New Zealand sport. I just wondered if you had a position on that. Yeah, it's a tough one. I mean, the reality is alcohol drives so much of the harm in New Zealand. So many of the jobs that police go to, those family harm incidents I talked about, are driven by alcohol. And saying that, sport's such a good thing to get people on the right track. It's great for your mental health. So if you're going to get rid of it, the government needs to replace it with the same amount of funding, I think. All right, Chris Carhill from the Police Association. Tēnā thank you for your time. Kia ora, thank you. Coming up on Q&A, his party leader accused the government of pushing separatist policies for Māori. Does Dr Shane Vetti agree with Judith Collins? He's with us next. Tēnā welcome back to Q&A. There were tensions in the House once again this week with Māori Party co-leader Rawadi Waititi ejected from the chamber after accusing the National Party of racism. For several weeks now, National has been accusing the government of pursuing separatist policies for Māori. National Party Deputy Leader Shane Reti is with us this morning from Queenstown, where the party is holding the latest of its regional conferences. Tēnā welcome to Q&A. What did you make of Rawiri Waititi being kicked out of the House? Oh, ka nui te mihi ki Good to speak with you. So, you know, Rawiri will have to explain his own actions. I was beside Judith and the lead-up to that. And uh, she asked four questions before the first point of interjection. Uh, the first question was, when can we expect to have public engagement on here, Pua Pua? The second and third questions were clarifications on some statements Calvin Davis had made. And the force was asking a, about dual government. And that's when uh, actually Debbie took the first point of order. And then you know, soon after that, uh, Rawiri did. Look, he'll have to account for his own actions as to whether he thinks he's achieved the goals he wanted to achieve by how he acted that day. Do you agree with everything your party leader has said this year and the language she has used regarding the government's agenda for Māori? Yes, I do. 
Because if we look at some of the statements that Rawiri made both in the House and as he was leaving, he was making accusations of, of, of racism and of separatism. But those four questions I gave to you there, which of those questions are separatist and which of those questions are racist? I would suggest that it's just appropriate critique and, and clarification that we're seeking as an opposition to better understand the motives and intentions of this government. So I do stand behind what Judith has said. OK, I, I'm, I'm, I'm talking about all of Judith Collins' comments over the last couple of weeks. So to be 100% clear, do you agree that a Māori health authority, as it is proposed, is a racist, separatist policy? By definition, it's a separate entity. It's a, a separate statutory entity, so by definition it's separatist. And I have grave concerns that it won't advantage Māori for the outcomes that they're looking for. What makes it racist? Oh, several things. First of all, it's a completely separate system. And my concerns here are that we'll have competition with Health New Zealand, so you'll have the Māori Health Authority and Health New Zealand competing. As a provider myself, I'm concerned that there'll be provider complexity. If I have someone come towards me, is there a part of that consultation that might be Māori Health Authority co-commissioned and part Health New Zealand commissioned? I have concerns for accountability if things don't go well. Health New Zealand will blame a Māori Health Authority, Māori Health Authority will blame Health New Zealand. But I think what's really missing in that narrative around the Māori Health Authority is the language of health outcomes. Can the government tell me one health outcome, anyone they want to choose, one health outcome that'll be better with the structure they're putting up? Because I'm afraid all I'm seeing is tears and tears and tears uh, of uh, bureaucracy, and that will end in tears. OK, sorry, just to be really clear, what makes it a racist policy? Oh, the fact that it's a separate, completely separate organism, a, a, a completely separate organisation, mm. and that's not even talking about the veto, where it has you know, that veto over everything else. Mm. Uh, I would suggest that's, that is separatist, as Judith is describing. But, but how, how, what, what makes it racist? So I really, that's the word that she used. So, and you say you stand by your party oh. leader's comments. What, what makes it racist? Sure. What makes it racist is that there is a, a form of differential treatment, if you like, for a group that we would suggest could be better done in one health system. It's this two separate systems that's going to be the problem. That, that's the difficulty to it. So, so what, what is racist about a differential system for a group of our population that on average die seven years earlier? Oh, that's a very, to talk to the first point, absolutely agree with the health inequities. And in fact, I've spent many decades pointing them out myself, so ab absolutely no issue that they are irrefutable. And to answer your question, what I'd point to is something like charter schools, which was un in our hands in the education mm. system, but inside one system, not two separate systems. That's what starts to make it separatist. That's what the challenge is going to be. So, so if it is a racist system, who is, who is disadvantaged? What race is disadvantaged? No, racists can be several things. There can be some that are advantaged and some that are disadvantaged. Mm. I think the key point I'm making here is that, and, and I accept that the One Health system we've had hasn't been perfect. I, I absolutely agree with that. But it's these two separate systems apart that is the problem that I've got. That's the challenge that no, I've got. I, 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 sorry, the that I, I understand the separate. System. Yeah, no, I understand this, the, the, this notion mm. of the two separate systems. But language is really mm. important in this space, and your party leader has used mm. the term racist. You say you stand by her comments mm. and I just I really want a clear answer mm. how is it racist mm. 
Well, it, it, it's racist because we have two separate systems with differential treatment outside of one whole. We're of a view that there should mm. be one whole system for everyone. And can I just come back to one really important point here? Mm. When we're talking health, I think the key principle to health, and this may actually help answer the question even further, the key principle should be guided by need. Whoever has the greatest need gets the resources. Oh, and by the way, it just turns out on almost any metric you want to name, Māori have the highest need. So that, that distribution then follows that. Because what we're seeing is that this is a, a restructuring that's based on inequity and based on a treaty relationship. And I just suggest to you, health needs to be based on need first, actually. But, but if, if Māori have the greatest need, and you say they should be treated mm. as having the greatest need, isn't that mm -hmm. a separate treatment in the same way you are describing it to me? Uh, it's a, uh, a targeted service, but in one system, not in the two systems, Jack. Is Fana Water racist? No, uh, but Fana Water doesn't have a veto over other parts of other systems. So no, Fana Water is a targeted service, just like charter schools are a targeted service to try and meet that need. Are rangatahi courts racist? Uh, no, they're not. Uh, but again, they don't have a veto over the rest of the justice system either. So is it the veto... Nor are they a separate entity. Is, is it the veto that, that, that you think makes this a racist system? No, no. The two separate systems are a challenge as well. The veto is just the step too far. And it's almost a disappointment because there was an opportunity here to really make some inroads into Māori health. Mm. And I'm just of a view, this, this is a step too far. There might still be a sweet spot around locality networks. I mean, none of us know what that mm. is. Uh, I'm hoping there might be if this is going to proceed, but, but not in this format. None of us disagree with the uh, output, the, the things we need to change. It's just the way we get there that we're having disagreement with. You're, you're obviously, you spent a long time as, as a GP. You've worked on the front lines of Māori health for many years. Why do Māori die seven years younger than other people on average? Oh, well, that's multiple PhDs and multiple departments, Jack. I mean, there's a number of reasons for that. We could start at the, you know, that there'll be a small genetic contribution and then there'll be access. Access to services uh, is always a problem. And, and you know, what I'd put to you is, over 30 years of clinical practice, as you're mm. saying, my observation is that if you treat people in a culturally competent context, be they Māori, be they non-Māori, be they Indian, whatever they may, you'll get better outcomes. That's my observation, I absolutely believe that. And, and I'm also of a view that for Māori, if that culturally competent context is based on principles of the Treaty of Waitangi, then that's not a bad starting place, actually. Oh, OK, so, so you do believe that Māori solutions to Māori problems is worth examining and promoting? Absolutely, by Māori, for Māori, with Māori in one system, but yes, that is my observation. As I say, in that culturally competent context, you mm. get better outcomes. Mm. Although, certainly the outcomes at the moment aren't good for Māori, are they? Do you think the current health yeah, no, system as it no, stands is, is racist? Uh, no, I don't. Uh, I actually back every single health worker who's mm. out there today and tomorrow and yesterday that they are doing their absolute best in the system they've got and the constraints that they've got. So I'll back every single health worker in our system, actually. And do you think the history of colonialism in New Zealand plays any role in Māori dying seven years earlier? Look, you know, I think Judith has talked to this in her first speech, actually, mm. and she said, uh, look, th there have been uh, grievances 
and there have been treaty breaches and we're looking to address that uh, with treaty settlements. So you know, I think we've already sort of talked to that and looked at how, how that becomes relevant to today and how we manage it today. That, that's what we need to look at. What is the health outcome that we need to achieve today? I'm not talking just about treaty grievances though, I'm talking about broader colonialism. Do you think, as someone who's worked on the front line of Māori health, that the history of colonialism in this country plays any role whatsoever in Māori dying seven years earlier on average? So I have had uh, people come to me and they have expressed a long history, this is in my clinical hands, Yeah. They've expressed a long history um, where, where they feel that, yes, uh, this is a consequence of the life and the journey that brings me here and my forebearers before me. And, uh, and I've seen that in them, and, and I've, I've, I've had to agree with them. I, I think they have been impacted in this particular situation by what they're describing as their journey uh, here today. Right, so you do think colonialism plays a role in Māori dying earlier. Doesn't that automatically mean then that, that Māori have been treated separately to other people in New Zealand? What I'm saying is I've seen in my clinical hands people who have made the case and indeed experts who have made the case that the past history that brings this person in front of me today is probably having a significant impact and as we come to manage that person that we should take that into account. Right, but they should be treated like everyone else. Uh, well, they've got, we've all got our different histories and we take that into account. That's part of that culturally competent context I was, I was speaking about earlier, Jack, mm. that we get a better outcome if we take these things into account, actually. Mm. I want to ask you about the question of tino rangatiratanga. What do you believe mm. is an appropriate English translation of tino rangatiratanga? For me, I ground it sort of simply on independence, that, that ability to have autonomy, that ability to chart your own course. In, in my mind, from my personal view, is how I interpret tino rangatiratanga. Right, so, so is that not a description of a Māori health authority? Uh, not a Māori health authority. I can have all of that inside of one system and that doesn't even talk to the veto. Okay. So no, I believe we can have all of that. I mean, I said we um, buy Māori, for Māori, with Māori. There is that expression of tino ranga tiratanga, mm. but within one system. So, so how, how would, in your eyes, how could that independence, to use your word, be reflected in one system? Mm. Mm. Okay, so when I critique the restructuring and when I look at you know, how we would critique what we would mm. put up as well, there's five, five core principles which I think will answer your question. Uh, the first is that uh, need needs to be the first principle in health. The second is one system. The third principle I'd cleave to would be that there needs to be health targets. The fourth would need to be that there's accountability for those health targets. And the fifth would be, as I've called, the culturally competent context. Uh, 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 context. I think that needs to sit there as well. So those five principles is what I believe we should hold this restructuring to account for and, and what a, a reasonable health system should start with. So, so, so how would independence be reflected in that? Oh, uh, within one system, uh, there's that ability, just exactly like we did with charter schools, for tino rangatiratanga to be expressed, as I've said to you, in that by Māori, for Māori, with Māori. Uh, I believe in that. I think it's effective. I'm supportive, very supportive of that. In fact, the last time I wrote to Minister Andrew Little, February 23, was saying, can you please support the Māori health providers to deliver the coronavirus vaccine? They've got a one in a hundred year opportunity to do what they're best at, but they're going to need some support them to win support them to help us deliver this vaccine. So, you know, we've got skin in this game and real belief in actual actions that follow that by Māori for Māori with Māori concept. 
It just, it, there'll be many people who feel confused by this, I know. that They'll hear you say you believe that, that Māori have, have a right to a degree of sovereignty and, and Māori have a, have a right to a degree of independence, but that should be within one system. And I note that the, the Māori mm. Health Authority, you know, has its own budget to fund Kaupapa Māori Health Services, but the decision over how much money that authority will have is still made by the Ministry of Health. It is still essentially under the umbrella of the government and under the Ministry of Health. It is still essentially within one system. Uh, no, the veto negates that. Uh, and while it's conceptually within one system, if you look at the org chart, you'll see the Māori Health Authority having decision-making and veto opportunities at all of these complex levels of the new restructuring. So I, I see it in a different way. Do you think your, your party has a coherent position when it comes to the degree of sovereignty with which Māori should have, uh, Māori should have over their own affairs? Mm. And so, look, we understand that we're, you know, we need to be more relevant to Māori and we're working on that really hard, really hard. Mm. Uh, our campaign review talked about it. Uh, you know, I, I don't think we were relevant, uh, as relevant as we'd like to be to Māori in 2020. So we're all working really hard to better understand that, to say to Māori, how can we better serve you? So I, I take your point. It's something that we're working hard on. Hey, very finally, uh, very quickly before we let you go, we're about to speak mm. with uh, Chloe Swarbrick about a bill that proposes to crack down on alcohol advertising in sport. What would be your position on that? Oh, I'd need to take that to, uh, to caucus. Need to see the detail first, Jack, and then take it to caucus. As, as a GP who's, who's, who's seen the harm that alcohol does in communities, would you like to see uh, greater restrictions on alcohol advertising in New Zealand? Uh, look, you know, uh, you're right. In my clinical life, I've seen a lot of harm uh, from alcohol. But I wouldn't want to comment until I'd seen exactly what's being proposed, both in my personal view and then from a collective view. We would need to take that to caucus. Dr Shane Rethi, thank you very much for your time. Namiki kia Pack a coat next time as well, Shane. It's cold in Queenstown. Coming up, remember this. Tobacco advertising used to be everywhere in sport until finally it wasn't. Could alcohol sponsorship in sport be banned as well? Richards and his partner Mark Scaife's Champagne of Success. Toasting a day at a tennis tournament sponsored by a brewery. DB's sponsorship of the Auckland Warriors was supposed to pay big dividends. And the fifth Steinlager Pacific Cup, rugby league's largest tournament in the world. They're racing. DB Draft Cup's underway. <laughs> the alcohol industry's a big backer of Kiwi sport. And at an event, you can't escape the advertising. It's everywhere. Yes, when you hit up the TVNZ library, it's not hard to find pictures of sport and booze. We're so normalised to alcohol advertising and sponsorship in sport that many of us barely consciously even recognise it. Green MP Chloe Swarbrick wants to change that, drafting a bill to ban alcohol advertising and sponsorship from sport and give communities more power to stop the development of new liquor outlets. Morena. Morena. Okay. Let's just lay out the proposals in the bill and let's start with the proposal to abolish appeals on local alcohol policies. What would that actually mean? So in 2013 there was a process that was created under legislation to enable local authorities, those are councils, to establish what are called local alcohol policies about where liquor outlets could be placed around the community. Uh, subsequent to that what we've seen uh, is that there is a substantial number of those councils, around 40% that have decided not 
to engage in that creation process. Reflected actually in the fact that 95% of members of LGNZ, Local Government New Zealand, have called for an end to this appeals process because that is a massive barrier to implementing what communities want, which is reduction of harm as far as alcohol harm in their communities. But isn't an appeals process just part of a democracy? Oh, absolutely, and that can be reflected through the judicial uh, appeals process. And uh, that is something which is available to all of the other policies pertaining to social harm that local councils have authority over. Removing this appeals process, which is inbuilt into the LAPs or local alcohol policy mm. processes, wouldn't prohibit that. And I think it's really also important for people to recognise that the vast majority over 80% of these appeals that go through this process have been levied by the two major supermarket companies in this country. And what that has done has meant that since I believe about 2015, Auckland Council has been bound up for six years in this appeals process. Christchurch uh, Council uh, spent a million dollars fighting those appeals for what the community wanted as far as harm reduction goes and in turn giving up. Would scrapping appeals automatically mean fewer licensed liquor outlets? Uh, not necessarily automatically, but it would mean that there is automatically more community voice in where these liquor outlets are being placed. We know, for example, if you look across the board, that if you speak to those in the likes of South Auckland, and I know that Efeso Collins, a local councillor down there, is massively in favour of this, that those communities don't typically have the same resources that wealthier communities do to fight the granting of these licences. The second change proposed in your bill would impact alcohol advertising in New Zealand sport. How so? Uh, it would do so by implementing some of the changes, only some of the changes that were recommended in the 2014 ministerial uh, advisory panel that was created with uh, Graham Lowe, actually, at the top of it, as somebody with some experience in sports and therefore in sports advertising. We would try and remove that tether between the glorification, the glamorisation, the normalisation mm. of alcohol as worn on the chests of our sporting heroes. What would that actually mean though? What, what do you want to ban? Uh, well, that would effectively be an end to the likes of what you're seeing presently on the screen. I mean, these are some uh, old school yep. pictures, but no, we're but, all no, but, but look at look at that. So yeah. that right there is an example of tobacco advertising, which was phased out in the 1990s. Uh, and that phase out, and this is really important for folks to know as well, because you'll often hear from the likes of the advertisers that you know where is the the hole going to be filled for the money that is no longer going to be able mm. to be there. Well, if you look at the data, unfortunately, the most recent we have is two. 2014, whereby we know that around $21 million was spent on alcohol advertising and sports sponsorship in this country. If we were to use, for example, one of the levers that's presently available to the Health Promotion Agency and create a leverage whereby uh, about 6%, uh, 6 cents rather, was added to the cost of a can of beer and about uh, 7 cents added to a bottle of wine, we could completely end it overnight, in turn removing that tether that glamorises and glorifies alcohol. Just to be really clear though about what you are proposing, is it all alcohol sponsorship and sport and marketing and sport like we don't see alcohol ads during during, during sport competitions games. and importantly the other point that's often been raised uh, yes uh, yes absolutely the other point that's often been raised is that well what about when it comes to international sporting practices again that can often be used as a sop uh, to give pathways for alcohol advertising to get back into sport however for recognizing that practicality and the kinds of powers that we're up against here there is provision in the bill at present that if we 
we are still operating in that international arena, then the Minister can provide that exclusion. You've been sitting on this bill since 2019. What mm. support have you had from your colleagues? So, uh, we've been sitting on this bill since 2019 because I have been the Greens spokesperson on drug harm reduction since 2018. And in that process, I've been trying to build up a conversation in this country around approaches to drug harm that are consistent across all drugs. We know that alcohol is the most harmful drug in our society right now. You had Chris Carhill just before from the Police Association saying that it is hugely associated to the call-outs that they are experiencing. But also speak to anybody who works in an ED. I believe 2018, 5,000 ED submissions just in Auckland. That's not even including counties Manukau and otherwise. Uh, so the support that we have kind of had tentatively is in the form of discussions. You heard there from Dr Shane Letty uh, that he's interested in it, but when it comes to the detail, uh, I think the lobbyists tend to bend the area. See, this is interesting because, I mean, during the, during the debate over cannabis reform, mm. I would often put politicians on the spot and say, OK, um, we know that alcohol causes more harm than any other drug mm. in New Zealand what would you change? What would you crack down on? What have you done in this space? And people always defer. Politicians of all stripes always defer. Have you spoken with your political colleagues in other parties mm. about whether or not they would support this? We did in 2019 write to both uh, the New Zealand Labour Party and New Zealand First and didn't get all too much back. Why is now this? this is back on the table, subsequent to the New Zealand Drug Foundation Symposium in Parliament. Yeah, why, why, why isn't this politically popular? Uh, I think because for a lot of politicians in the same way that they tend to think of uh, substances like cannabis and they think about prohibition as being the frame of we're not encouraging this, whenever we talk about alcohol and we talk about changes to it, people immediately see that as a barrier to access. But what we're talking about when we're talking about ending sponsorship and advertising, it's not changing people's access to the substance, which we know is also mm -hmm. massively harmful. What we're talking about is ending the normalisation and glamorisation. And importantly, uh, actually in the proposed cannabis legalisation and control bill, there was an out and out ban on all advertising and sponsorship for the very purpose that we recognise that when you continue to enable this visibility, more harm can be perpetuated because more people want to consume that substance. People are still going to look at this interview and say, hang on, the person who wanted to increase access through legal means to cannabis is looking to restrict alcohol advertising and maybe restrict the proliferation of liquor outlets. She's a hypocrite. I think what you'll find is that the Greens are the only party with a consistent line on drug harm reduction for all drugs, including our most harmful. And I just really want to drill into this because often what you will see is legalisation being conflated with liberalisation. They are not the same thing. There is a spectrum of approaches to substances which go from prohibition all the way to a complete free market. We think that with alcohol, we're far too far down that complete free market road and you can speak to any expert in this sector and they will tell you we need to rein it in. You were the very public face for the yes vote in cannabis reform. Obviously that failed mm. in the referendum. What did you learn from that campaign that might help you to progress this campaign? Funnily enough, uh, one of the ironies that's been pointed out to me by folks who were on the yes site uh, is that by virtue of the fact that we inherently and from the outset restricted how much money could be made by commercial entities in the cannabis legalisation mm. and control regulation kind of model that we put forward, uh, we therefore didn't have the same level of commercial interest in getting this across the line. So 
we didn't see the flood of resourcing in campaigning for the yes vote from commercial entities that we have seen in other jurisdictions. And that's the irony, right? When we're talking about reining in, when we're talking about taming the beast of alcohol glamorization and normalization in our country, there are hugely powerful forces against it which have a lot of money. And I guess that's the point, right? Is that on the one mm. side, when we're talking about cannabis legalization and control, we were talking about sucking out some of those uh, really profit-driven incentives, whether those are from the black market or from a commercial free market. We're talking about the same kind of thing when we're talking about regulating alcohol better. And I'd hope, particularly from those who came out swinging against the idea of greater access, which actually was never fathomed in the Cannabis Legalisation Control Bill, but against cannabis writ large, that they would see a massive opportunity in regulating mm. alcohol in this country. What I'm saying, and I, I mean this in the most respectful mm. way possible, is are you the right person to fight this fight? I'd love it if somebody else wanted to pick it up. I'd love it if Dr Shane Risi wanted to pick it up. But as far as I can see, there's a whole lot of people who are really scared of going up against the alcohol companies. Do you need to wait until there is space in the ballot for you to submit this as a member's bill? So there's always a number of competing priorities in the ballot. Right now, my bill that's in the ballot would end uh, the investment in fossil fuels by all of our state sector entities. Uh, this is something which has been in the back pocket for a long time now in the same way that I have in my back pocket a bill to end greyhound racing in this country. Uh, so actually, I'd love to see more cross-party collaboration on this issue. And I guess that's the point of putting this back on the table, right? Is saying, well, everybody's talking about drug harm. Why don't we talk about the most harmful drug. All right, before we let you go, I just want to ask you about something. You marched yesterday with about a thousand people and your Green Party colleagues in support of Palestinians. Mm -hmm. um, your colleague Ricardo Menendez March tweeted a phrase, and we have a picture of the tweet here, from the river to the sea, Palestine will be free. Now, to some of our viewers, that might seem relatively innocuous, but I know that it is a contentious issue, and, and that, in the eyes of some, is a very offensive phrase because some people believe that phrase specifically advocates for Israel not to exist. Just to be really clear, do you and the Green Party believe that Israel has a right to exist? Fundamentally, the Greens have consistently been clear that we believe in a two-state solution. In order to get to that two-state solution, we as a nation must recognise the state of Palestine. Okay. Thank you very much for your time. Green Party MP Chloe Swarbrick. Up next on Q&A, the new MP in an electorate that has had its fair share of recent scandals. Southland electorate, Todd Barclay, Hamish Walker, Poison Chalice. Kia ora iti, we welcome back to Q&A. With so many new members of Parliament, this year on Q&A we are working to introduce you to some of the new faces in the Beehive. Last week we were in Northland, this time Fena Owen has travelled to the other end of Aotearoa to check in with National's new MP for Southland. Kia ora, I'm Joseph Mooney, the Member of Parliament for Southland. OK, I'm going to be straight with you. Southland electorate... Todd Barclay, Hamish Walker, Poison Chalice? Absolutely not, no. Third time um, lucky. Well, I, I, as I see it, this is a, um, a fresh electorate for me. Yeah. Um, and I, I'm not focusing on the past, I'm focusing on the future and, and the present. How much recognition do you have as a new MP here? 
Do people, like I notice people aren't stopping and saying hello to you. I know that's oh, probably rude. But... No, look, there's, there's um, a lot of visitors in town. And yeah, they're probably all visitors. That's why we see these people walking around here now, actually. Which right. is, which is so exciting they're all visitors, see. that's why they don't know you. I would, I would say so, yes. Paw Patrol! A lot of buskers here. Right <laughs> here we go. Showtime right here. Let's do this. Oh, we got the TV crews here. <laughs> we look good. That's actually my manager, Dave. It's <laughs> <laughs> your MP. Really? Yes. Why yeah. You should, yes, oh, no, you should no. know him. I'm MP for here. Yeah, okay. Yeah. I'm not from here. Yeah, I have no see? idea. See? Like, no, you're proving my point. I experienced some, some really tough times, for sure, as a kid. Uh, you know, they're, they're just as a result of um, my stepfather losing his work in, in the farming sector and struggling to find more work. And it was just, that was just the nature of, of the economic situation at that time. For a variety of reasons, my younger brother and I chose to leave home when I was 11 and he was nine. <clears throat> we planned to travel from Hawke's Bay to the gold fields in central Otago, live in old mining huts and make a living panning for gold. We um, spent about a week living on the streets of Wellington in the, in the parks and etc. Um, so is real Huckleberry Finn? I guess so. <laughs> we didn't quite make it where we wanted to get to, though. But, but look, I'm here now. I've worked in the rural sector and tourism, building small businesses both here and overseas, um, uh, you know, be, uh, becoming a lawyer. So I've done a, you know, and, and a whole raft of other things. But, so I've done a lot of things, but Parliament is unique. It's, it's definitely a, a unique place. And he decided he... Yeah. I'm going to come back. I'm going to have my head shaved next time. How would you describe the national corpus at the moment? Like I like it. It's it's obviously um, new for me, and um, and it's you know obviously gone through a difficult election. But look, there's a there's a great bunch of people there. Uh, I'm I'm getting on really well with them, and look, I don't I don't see any any issues from my perspective. So you don't see any issues around leadership. No. Do you think that's just not perpetuated by the media? Well, there's, the story seems to be driven from the media, as far as I can tell. It's, I'm, I'm, not, um, I'm not hearing it from within my corpus. Are you conscious that the, um, some of your predecessors have been accused of spending too much time in Queenstown? Uh, look, it's a very diverse electorate, and like, it, is, it is a challenge for sure to get around it. Like, to put it in perspective, it's actually bigger than Belgium. But look, I love it. It's, it's so, so How do you diverse, rate so it as electorates go? Oh, look, I think it's probably the best in the world. It's just, it's, it's awesome. Yeah. Right, Fina Owen reporting there. That is Q&A for this week. Nga mihikia koutou i ngā karere. Thank you for watching and thanks to the Q&A team. Just so you know, we will be producing a live special when Grant Robertson presents the budget this week. So join us on Thursday from 2pm sharp on TVNZ1 as we unpack the big announcements and consider how the 2021 budget will affect you. For now though, kua mutu, marae is up next. Hey tērā wiki, we will see you next Sunday at 9am. Q&A is made with the support of New Zealand On Air.